Um, I wonder if any of you here might remember when NASA first put a man into orbit around the Earth. Um, I was seven years old at the time, so I can't remember too much about it. But I recently read that there was a little debate between the astronauts who were going to be uh, uh, circling the Earth and the NASA officials. The astronauts wanted a window in their capsule so that they could uh, take pictures and view the Earth as they circled it. Um, but the NASA officials, health and safety, decided that might be too difficult in the design. In the end, the astronauts were successful, and so they were able to view the Earth from their capsule. Uh, one cosmonaut from Russia commented on his first trip how amazing it was for him to have difficulty actually trying to locate Mount Everest because it was so small. Here's a, a, verse, uh, a comment from a Saudi astronaut who explained... The first day or two, we all pointed to our countries. The third or fourth day, we were pointing to our continents. By the fifth day, we were aware only of the earth. In fact, those comments come from a book which was published uh, quite recently called Global Citizens. Um, It's an attempt to encourage people in this country uh, not only to think about their nation, but also to have a global perspective, to think globally. And in many senses, that is precisely what Paul gives us in these verses in 1 Timothy 2. He's trying to encourage the church to think globally, the local church. And for one thing, it's very easy, I think, for churches, I can't speak too much for Chalmers, but for my own church, I'm from Oxford, it's quite busy, there's a lot of activity. It's very easy to concentrate on keeping the show on the road, making sure everything happens as it should. You begin to lose sight of the wider world out there. Now, when Paul was writing to Timothy, he knew a great deal about the challenges which Ephesus faced, the challenges of being a a local church in a fairly hostile environment. There were all kinds of difficulties for the local church. But he deliberately emphasizes that for the local church, as we gather, there are some key priorities. You'll notice how the, the passage begins. First of all, he begins with prayer, and prayer not for the church, but for the world out there. And this is a lovely passage, I think, which describes for us God's passion for all mankind, all humankind. And therefore, what that is meant to uh, uh, result in, in terms of the activities and life of a local church. I thought we would look at this because during the week we've been looking at God's love and compassion for all humankind through the little story of Ruth. Quite a few of you have been with us on that journey. And here in the New Testament, this passage focuses on God's purposes for all as we look at at these features. In fact, um, the first point on the screen, I hope uh, my system may advance it. I'm not sure I'm having success. I don't know if uh, one of the guys at the back can... Thank you so much. Um, That's the repeated refrain of this little passage, the word all. You'll notice... um, Paul says it three times, prayer for all people in verse 1. Verse 4, God desires all to be saved. Verse 6, Jesus gave his life for all. And we could add to that verse 7 where Paul describes the fact that his mission is to the Gentiles, in other words, to all nations. So Paul is concerned to emphasize here 
that the good news of salvation is not for some special elite, not for some small group. God's purposes are universal. His passion is for all. So I want to just summarize this uh, passage under two simple headings, uh, which I hope will uh, capture our hearts and minds as we think about our role as a local church. First of all, we are to pray for all. Now, I don't know whether you're like me, um, I, I carry little lists of things for which I should pray. I have a little booklet and uh, I make lists. And um, if you do that, you're probably like me. And that is, I tend to start with the things which are closest to me. My family, uh, my daughter who's about to give birth, actually, um, in the next day or two. Um, there are things which are close to us, which we're thinking about, which we pray for. But you'll notice um, that Paul operates in a slightly different way. In fact, uh, we should start with the outer circle first. He says we should pray for those leaders out there, for this world. Um, You'll notice different words Paul uses, all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, and especially for rulers. Um, He probably does that because we all know that the nature of the government in our country, and uh, this is true globally, the nature of of what is happening in society radically impacts the way the Christian church can can continue its mission and indeed its worship. So verse 1 shows that the first priority for us as a local church, and indeed in our praying, is global. It's universal. Um, I was... Uh, for many years serving in a church in the West Country, and there were two uh, great brothers who used to pray every prayer meeting. We had it on a Monday night. Um, and they, they had captured what Paul is saying. The, the first uh, man used to get up, his name was Mr. Cook, and uh, he would pray country after country, you know, about 20 minutes. He would pray all around the world, Cook's Tours, we used to call them, <laughs> as he prayed for God's work all around the world. The, the other was another great Devonian uh, Believer, and he used to pray, Lord, we pray for all of the people in the uninhabited parts of the world. We, pr- we pray for all of the people in the uninhabited parts of the world. The Lord knew what he meant. We knew what he meant. These were men in whose heart was this conviction that we should begin by praying for God's purposes around the world. Remember, this is instructions for the local church. Now, why does that kind of prayer matter? Why does Paul say that we should begin by praying? in that universal way? Well, he gives a couple of reasons. First of all, he gives the practical issue of verse 2, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. Uh, In Paul's day, of course, peace allowed for the effective spread of the gospel. The Roman rule had resulted in peace over a huge area, and the result of that was an environment of liberty for Christian mission. Um, We might be tempted to complain about our politicians, but I wonder to what extent we regularly pray for our rulers, our governments, our kings. That is often a critical issue, as I've already implied. I've worked for a number of years with Langham Partnership and also still with uh, IFES, the student uh, ministry globally. And we all know that in many parts of the world, Christian mission in those contexts can be advanced or hindered by what is happening in terms of the political situation in Zimbabwe or in Indonesia or in northern Nigeria or in China, wherever it may be. Um, If your churches are going to be burned down, if your leaders are going to be arrested, you pray 
for governments and leaders and kings. And so must we. But what's really important about this passage is not only the practical reasons he gives for this kind of prayer, but also the theological reasons. In fact, it's presented in a series of bullet points, a very powerful little apologetic in these verses, for the cause of giving ourselves to pray and uh, uh, advance the uh, uh, ministry of global mission. Here, here they are. First of all, he says, it pleases our Lord, our God, that we should pray in this way. First of all, because there is one God. Verse 5, there is one God and mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So his point is very fundamental. If there is one God, he is the one creator, the one redeemer of all humankind, then, of course, the offer of salvation must be available to all. Um, this is a foundation truth throughout Scripture, of course. It's repeated in the Old Testament, and Paul makes the point in Romans. It's on the screen, Romans 3. Because there is only one God, there is only one gospel. Is God the God of, Jew, the, God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God. Uh, he uses exactly the same argument uh, when he's preaching himself. Do you remember in uh, Acts 17 in Athens? The Lord God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Now he commands all men everywhere to repent. So there is one universal God, Paul is saying. He is the creator of all. He loves all. All are accountable to him. There's his first big reason for praying for all. There is one God. Second, there is one purpose. Verse 4, God wants all men and women to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, as we've seen, um, Paul's intention here is to deliberately underline God's concern, God's passion for all men and women. Uh, people who comment on these verses suspect that there might have been some kind of heresy within the church which was suggesting that God's purposes of salvation were restricted to a particular elite. If that was the case, Paul couldn't have been more clear. God's compassion extends to all, irrespective of race or gender or ethnicity or economic status. You'll notice he says in verse 4, God, our Saviour, wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Um, in those days, he couldn't embolden you know, on his laptop. He didn't embolden certain words. In order to emphasise, bring an emphasis, he repeats, God, our Saviour, wants all to be saved. Now, he's not implying, of course, that everybody will be saved. That's why you'll notice in these verses, there's this little phrase, come to a knowledge of the truth. That's a little formula to describe Christian conversion, a response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the way to come into God's family as we respond to all that Jesus has done, as we'll see in just a minute. But the key thing is that there is nothing exclusive here. God's loving purpose is that all should hear, that all should respond. Now, Peter says exactly the same, do you remember? He is patient with everyone, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So there is one God, 
And there is one purpose. And then thirdly, as we've already underlined, there is one mediator. One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for all men. It's quite important, isn't it, to follow the sequence of what Paul is saying here. Um, There would be quite a lot of people in Edinburgh and around the world who'd agree with the opening statement, there is one God. But Paul pushes it further with this assertion and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Um, You can usually spot false teaching or false religion because what it normally tries to do is insert other mediators between us and God. It might be Moses, which is partly what uh, uh, Paul was addressing in Galatians. It might be angels. It might be supernatural powers. It might be saints. It might be the Virgin Mary. It might be Muhammad. It might be Hindu avatars and so on. They're inserting in between us and God other mediators. But Paul is underlining there is only one mediator. He is the saviour of all. Christ Jesus, he is the universal mediator. And the message centres on him, and the mission is fulfilled by him. What Paul is underlining here is that God's purposes of salvation are for all, and they are Christocentric. Um, In our church in Oxford, we are very uh, pleased to welcome quite a lot of people from different parts of the world, including international students. I guess that's very similar in many of the Edinburgh churches, Chalmers included. And um, at the beginning of the academic year, um, we're invited to welcome international students who are arriving in the city uh, to come have a meal with us. And we did that. We had uh, a really lovely group who came for a meal. And um, during the evening, one of them who came uh, from uh, a Buddhist background said to me, "Uh, I've never been in a Christian church. Could I come? So you're delighted. We were very pleased. Please do. So he turned up. At 9.30 the following Sunday morning, it's normally our uh, all-age service. It's a fairly uh, energetic service with lots of kids and lots of things going on. And about 15 minutes into the service, he turned to me and said, and who is your God exactly? Which is a good question for a Buddhist to ask a Christian. And in the middle of the service, with everything that's happening, we, we had a quick discussion. I said, well, let me just point you to Jesus Christ. He is the focal point. And uh, we've discussed it over coffee as well. That's, I think, what we have to say. Uh, uh, Paul is underlining here one God, one purpose, one mediator. It focuses in Jesus Christ. The reason why this is important is that we are living now in a very plural environment. And it's not at all uncommon these days for Christians to to be told, well, it's okay for you, but don't try to absolutize it. Don't universalize it. And uh, it's common, too, to, to, when people uh, hear what we are saying and what I am now saying about the uh, universality of Christ's work as the one mediator, for, for people to say, well, by what right? What right have you to say that Jesus is the saviour of the world? There are now 1.5 million Muslims in the country. That's more than communicant members of the Church of England. By what right... Have you to assert that Jesus Christ is the saviour of all? And therefore, in that environment, we have to say with conviction what Paul gives us here. There is one God and one mediator, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. 
And whilst we must do that with sensitivity and humility, we should never shrink from the task of Christian proclamation or be intimidated by today's religious pluralism. Paul is very clear, chapter 2, it is the man Christ Jesus, the one who came to represent all humankind, the one who gave himself as a ransom. He uses all of the language that we might associate with this idea of a mediator. Christ's atoning work on the cross was the ransom price for our freedom. It focuses on Jesus Christ, one God, one purpose, one mediator. Um, I love this uh, quote I'm going to put up on screen from uh, something that John Stott wrote some while ago. Nothing is more important for the recovery of the church's mission where it has been lost or its development where it is weak than a fresh, clear and comprehensive vision of Jesus Christ. When he is demeaned and especially when he is denied in the fullness of his unique person and work, The church lacks motivation and direction. Our morale crumbles and our mission disintegrates. But when we see Jesus, it is enough. We have all the inspiration, incentive, authority and power we need. So Paul's instructions for the local church, for worship in the local church, underlines this breadth of God's concern. Here it is. There is one God, one purpose, one mediator. And therefore we should pray for all because God longs for the salvation of all. And um, as I've reflected on this in the last uh, few days, I have to ask myself again, and may I ask you, to what extent does this shape our commitment? Um, One of the most effective satanic strategies to hinder the spread of the gospel is to anesthetize or to distract our churches that should be praying and giving and sending in terms of this universal mission. Um, I'm involved with Keswick Ministries and uh, we've just published a book this summer, ready for its 140th anniversary, about the the big priorities of that Keswick movement all around the world. It's uh, not only 140 years here in the UK, but rippled around the world uh, to to many other countries. And um, there are eight really big priorities which mark that movement around the world. And I think that all of them are being sustained, with the exception perhaps of one, and that is the extraordinary commitment that there was to prayer in this country and uh, as we look at what's happening in the majority world uh, of Asia and Africa, where believers are totally committed to pray, perhaps that's one of the reasons why the church in those territories is advancing so rapidly. To what extent are we engaging in prayer? Well, I often ask of myself and in our own congregation why we do that so little. Perhaps it's because it doesn't seem so relevant. Perhaps, as I said at the beginning, it's because we're distracted by other things, Perhaps we feel we don't have the information or it may not even make any difference. Perhaps the big reason, though, is that we have lost the sense of urgency which you detect in a passage like this. It's one of the reasons, I think, for uh, reading a passage and commenting on it this morning is that it produces the big motivations, the big reasons for our our committing ourselves to pray for God's purposes worldwide as well as here in Edinburgh. Prayer will bring about 
God's purposes. And what is so intriguing is uh, what Paul uh, underlines in terms of the context. This is the local church that's at prayer. And as we pray, we discover that God is doing his work globally. I've hinted at it already. We're part of the fastest growing family on the planet. There are more believers in China this morning than there are meeting in the churches across the United Kingdom and the whole of Western Europe. Uh, There are more Anglicans meeting in Nigerian churches this morning than in all of the Anglican churches in the United Kingdom, Australia, North America uh, and, uh, and Europe combined. There is phenomenal growth, 1,600 new churches being planted every week, something like 41,000 people coming to faith every week in Africa alone, as far as we can assess those kinds of figures. It is fantastic that there is such remarkable growth globally. And Paul says this is coming about because week by week, in local churches like Chalmers, we are praying for all. Well, let me draw to close with one other reference because Paul, as he talks about this, uses one other phrase in verse 7 which we shouldn't miss. I've called it proclaim to all. You'll notice what he says in verse 7. For this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. So he says, my mission, and indeed by extension, our mission is to herald this good news, not just to one group, but as he deliberately underlines, to the Gentiles, to the nations, to all. And that is the force, that's the logic of the way in which he writes these verses. The call to go and proclaim to all arises from our understanding of God's character and God's purposes. This is what God is like, the one God. This is God's intention, the one purpose. This is God's son, the one mediator. And so he writes, for this purpose I was appointed. Because of that reality of who God is and what God plans for his world, I was appointed for this reason. And he uses several phrases there up there on the screen. Some people think this might represent the different stages, the successive stages of mission. He's a herald, uh, as we are. That is someone who's appointed to uh, declare the good news, to evangelize. He's an apostle, that's the church planter. And he's a teacher, that's the one who then encourages and builds uh, disciples, rather like your lovely uh, sequence of strap lines, reach, build, train, and send. That's precisely what these verses imply. I'm telling the truth, Paul says in verse 7, possibly because there were still people in the church there who were unconvinced that it was necessary to go to all nations, to go to the Gentiles. But Paul sees it and states it very clearly. The message is for all, So we must proclaim to all. And this isn't just a reference to Paul's apostolic calling, it points to our calling. I wonder if we feel the force uh, of this very simple message in these verses, feel the heartbeat of what Paul is saying. One God, one purpose, one mediator, so we should pray for all and we must proclaim to all. Now for some years, as I've hinted, Um, I worked with IFES, the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. And uh, whilst on the staff, we would uh, send quite large numbers of young graduates to serve in different uh, contexts for a year or more 
um, across Europe and indeed uh, across uh, the Russian Federation. We sent quite a few to Siberia, in fact, and some of them even came back. And um, one of these guys was from my home city, and uh, um, we sent him off to Irkutsk. Um, it's way up in the uh, Arctic Circle. It's uh, um, several time zones beyond Moscow. The temperatures dropped to about minus 60 in the winter. It's, uh, you can't get there by road or rail. You can only fly in. It's, it's grey. It's uh, inhospitable. Um, the excitement of being there wears off in a couple of weeks. And so I asked him, he had a very good Oxford degree in economics, and I said, why bury yourself there? Because he kept on asking, can I stay? He did, I think he was there for two, three years or more. And he said, well, the reason why I want to be there is because of the joy of sharing the good news with the desperate young people in this city. And then he quoted 2 Corinthians 5. He said, basically, I'm there because Christ died for all. 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 14, I think it is. Christ died for all. It was the force of that reality which pushed him to go to uh, what really is the uttermost parts of the earth, really. And it's exactly the same for us. That's the force of this passage. We will be uh, moved to proclaim the good news to others, whether it's to other parts of the world or whether it's to our neighbours across the street, to people here in the city, uh, to the many, many internationals who are here in Edinburgh, whether migrant workers or whether international students. These opportunities I just picked up on your um, stand at the back there, the Edinburgh International Outreach now underway and still running uh, through till the end of July. If you can't be involved, we could at least pray for the opportunity to reach so many people who are arriving in town who uh, have never had the opportunity of hearing the good news. And who knows, as they come to faith, I could tell you a few stories, but time is nearly up of the way in which, as people come to faith and return to their home territories, the ripple effects for the cause of the gospel are fantastic. Well, dear brothers and sisters, let me draw to a close. Pray and proclaim is what I take from the force of this little passage. And I wonder if I could urge you, as I urge myself, to take every opportunity to do those two things. Maybe join a prayer group, and maybe adopt a particular country that we can pray for. I did that early on uh, in my Christian life, and uh, it pushed me into uh, all kinds of unexpected areas of mission uh, as I prayed wholeheartedly for certain parts of the world. Maybe there's a summer program, as I've in indicated, international students, maybe longer-term service for some of us here. Maybe it's just across the street. Maybe it's around the world. Um, some of us may feel... All I've said this morning uh, doesn't really, it's not really possible for you in your circumstances. Um, I've, I will just give you one example from my own family. Uh, my father-in-law lived with us for uh, 14 years. He was very severely disabled. He lived in our home. Uh, he could hardly move. He, lived, he sat in what he called his electric chair, which was um, a riser chair, um, which got him onto his feet as he had to uh, uh, move occasionally. But... Uh, for about 15 years, he hardly moved from that room. Uh, at the time, I was, and still am, still travelling a good deal uh, in, in the work of the gospel, and I often used to sit alongside him and think, well, who's doing the most for the gospel? Because actually, day by day, hour by hour, stacked next to his electric chair, 
were magazines from mission societies, prayer letters from people all around the globe, uh, printouts which we would give him from uh, country bulletins from the BBC website. He was praying all around the world. He didn't move from that room probably for 15 years, but he understood this passage and he was committed to pray. So whatever our circumstances, dear brothers and sisters, the force of this passage is this. Because of one God, one purpose, one mediator, we are to pray for all and to proclaim to all. Paul is talking here about having a global perspective. And he's reminding the local church, this is part of your worship. It's true, isn't it, that that should be integrated into our worship. A concern for God's glory in worship is matched by a concern for God's glory in mission. Declare his glory among the nations. That is sometimes referred to as doxological evangelism. We are declaring his glory and we're doing so among the nations. So our task is to call our friends and our neighbours and our family and men and women globally to come to Jesus Christ. Here's a definition with which I finish. It's from David Bryant on what a global Christian looks like. A world Christian is someone who is so gripped by the glory of God and the glory of his global purpose that he chooses to align himself with God's mission to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. The burning prayer of the world, Christian, is let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise thee. Let's pray together. Father, how wonderful it is that we live in an age which is really a global village. You've given us the opportunity now to know what's going on in almost every corner of the planet. We thank you so much for the wonder of... uh, Uh, of your good work in so many countries of the world where we're seeing people turn to faith in Jesus Christ in phenomenal numbers. Thank you so much for the rapid growth of the church in these last uh, few years. And thank you too for this Christian community, Chalmers, this local church. Thank you too for your grace in calling us into your family and to be members of this local church. And we pray that as we've read these simple truths in the New Testament, that you are one God, you have one purpose and one mediator in Jesus Christ, that it will push us to give more energy to pray for all and to proclaim to all. We pray for our uh, work this week, whatever it is that we're doing, whether it's at home or out in our professions or meeting friends, whether it's engaging in the mission of the international outreach here in Edinburgh, All of these opportunities, Lord, we pray that you'll keep us alert to those opportunities when we can pray and proclaim. We ask this for the greater glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.